0: Welcome to our third podcast on Forever LDS. Today, we have a special treat for you, or at least I hope it's a special treat. I'm going to read from my unpublished tennis shoes adventure novel, Thorns of Glory, which every day is just so much closer to being finished, although I still refuse to make any prediction. I'm going to read this segment, obviously, because I, I hope it'll be fun for listeners, but also so we can discuss an important issue of storytelling. I'll get into that after I'm I'm done. Before I begin, let me remind listeners, this is a rough draft. It's also a rough narration. This particular segment is from the POV of Brock McConnell, sort of a controversial character in my series because he's just so darn obnoxious. This is a big scene for him. Every 14-year-old has to grow up sometime. And the circumstances where Brock is forced to grow up, I wouldn't wish on any 14-year-old. So, without further ado, here we go. I cried his name again, louder. Gid-Gidaniah! Commander Gid! Commander Gid! Then I felt like an idiot. Gid was fighting three men at once. My shouts could have distracted him, gotten him killed. Instead of yammering like a banshee, I reached behind my shoulder and grabbed my sword. I armed myself without lowering the scorpion banner an inch. I felt weirdly proud of that. The Nephites were still flocking to me, flocking to the battle standard I carried, scrambling over dead bodies to take on all comers who threatened me or my wooden scorpion. Gid drove the enemy backwards. He was the point of the Nephite spear, so to speak. He personally led the effort to halt the Lamanite advance. I glanced at my black blade. I was probably the biggest doofus on the entire hill for arming myself with a weapon I didn't know how to use. I didn't think about that. As I ponder it now, I fell into a trance of swords. It was as if I'd been doused with courage, like sizzling liquid metal or metal. I felt a surge of bravery I never knew was inside me. Instead of screaming at Gid, I followed him. I charged behind him as he cut down all takers who stood in his way. More scorpion soldiers stood side by side with him, many locking shields together in a kind of wall, defending their commander and each other. It wasn't so easy keeping up. Other scorpions fought to keep pace with Gid, just like me. They followed the banner that I carried, followed their general. I felt important, essential. What a thing. Men were using me as their guide. I was unbreakable. Nothing could hurt me. Nothing could slow me down. I was right behind Gid. I could have clipped him in the helmet with the top of my pole. He still hadn't seen me, and I wasn't about to break his concentration. He was like this mechanized ninja. Something beautiful struck me about his motions. Something terrifying. It was martial arts, dancing, and death by precision. No movement was wasted. Gid chopped an enemy's sword in half. That is, he broke the blade and severed the man's right arm in a brutal swipe. His victim howled raggedly, but he wasn't dead. He just fell back into a sea of faces. Gid maneuvered his axe into a backhanded swing, slicing a gaping wound in a Lamanite's back near the base of his spine. Again, the man wasn't dead. Gid didn't care if an opponent lived or died. He seemed to prefer incapacitation, not out of mercy, just because it was quicker. He chose the swiftest way to ensure challengers never fought again. The man Gid had slashed in the back knelt before me. He looked up, on the verge, I think, of collapsing sideways so fate could handle the rest. Instead, I decided his fate. I stabbed the point of my obsidian sword in his chest. I don't know why. I just lunged. No forethought. The tip penetrated his flesh below the collarbone. Most Lamanites wore no padding or armor, just a colorful tunic, orange and blue and white. Soon the cloth absorbed blood from my wound. Something snapped in me, not like the snap of fingers more like the pop of a hundred panes of glass, echoing from every room above, below, and around. Sound and sight rushed in all at once, like wind and glass and, and whipping into me, crashing, echoing. The man fell over. He was dead. His eyes sat open, the pupils lifeless. I'd killed him. Me. Brock McConnell. I'd ended the life of a breathing, thinking human being, a guy with 25 years of memories, happy memories, evil memories, all memories. It's not like I'd killed him alone. Gid's injury was probably fatal. My stab was meaningless, unnecessary, and yet I'd done it. I'd ended a man's life. The thought hammered behind my eyes. I'd done him a favor, right? He'd surely have bled to death, writhed in the sweltering heat. He might have suffered for hours, maybe days. I'd ended his misery. So why did the guilt coil inside me? Why did it feel like a fist in my stomach, squeezing my guts from the inside? The contents of my last meal retched out of me, covering the dead man's tunic. I turned away and barfed again. I slipped and landed on another body, a Nephite this time. The body jerked and twitched. I'd hit his chest. It pushed his last breath from his lungs. The twitching stopped. It felt as if I'd killed a second man, a comrade in arms. No, it wasn't me, but the timing. I felt revolted. I jolted off the man's chest and slipped again. Why couldn't I keep my footing? I glanced around. The ground was covered with gore, littered with... It was all over my hands, my weapon. The scorpion banner was stained, too. The air was sick and sour, rotten milk, rotten something. I blanked out, at least that's the best way I can describe it. There was no particular reason for me to go unconscious. I just don't remember the next few minutes. The sky, the fires of the city walls, the blood, the bodies of the dead, every color smeared like water streaming over a chalk drawing. I turned my face into the rising sun, letting the brightness burn holes into my eyes. The sting must have become too painful. I must have finally pinched him shut, but I don't recall. My next real thought was someone dragging at my hands, at my banner pole. Someone was trying to steal it. Steal my scorpion standard. Something about this snapped me to alertness. It was a Lamanite. No, not a Lamanite. A lightning warrior, one of those elite soldiers from Teotihuacan. He was fully armored. Tiny, shriveled skulls hung on his shoulders. Either the heads had been shrunk, or... I didn't want to think about another explanation, such as the age of the victims... Tattoos circled and swirled over his flesh, even his knuckles, stamped with crabs and snakes and stalks of corn, like pictures from an astrology chart. The whites of his eyes stood out against his tattooed face like moons, his pupils, blots of black ink. He wore no expression, as if he had no soul. But I saw determination. He wanted my banner. He wanted that scorpion sculpture as a token of victory. When I resisted and didn't release the pole, he drew back his lips. I couldn't tell if it was in anger or humor, but his teeth flashed brighter than his eyes. His sword was enormous. The blade was shimmering white, except for a slick of red along the edges, like an ice sword from a fantasy painting, probably a book cover I'd once seen. I couldn't even say what kind of stone it was. Marble? Flint? It was flecked with tiny spots like... Vanilla bean ice cream. He hefted it back, my breath sort of stuck in my lungs, half in and half out. I saw what was coming. I saw it all in my mind's eye. I knew the exact level and speed of that coming strike. I saw my own death. That vanilla-specked sword was going to whip into my neck, chop right through my Adam's apple... Then he'd yank it back toward himself, slicing off my head as cleanly as Uncle Drew slaying a chicken for Sunday dinner. I saw it all in my brain before the blow could even get there. I even imagined how my head would hit the ground and roll in the gore and how my eyes would look back at my own headless torso as the man with skulls on his shoulders pried my dead fingers from the scorpion banner's pole. Then he'd leave me there, alone and forgotten, among hundreds of other dead and dying bodies on that bloody battlefield, my eyesight would fade to black, a circle getting smaller and smaller like in an old movie. But that's not what happened. Something else happened. There it is. That's all I'm going to read. You know me, I'm very cruel with cliffhangers, but I can't give away all my novel secrets. What I wanted to discuss was my use of violence in this scene. Now, I warned my readers way back in Book 11, Sorcerers and Seers, that as I got into the battle at Kamora, things were bound to get dicey, and parental guidance may be necessary. Obviously, this scene justifies that warning. The question is, did I go too far? I don't know you're welcome to give feedback. This is a tough question, and it's one that I ask myself every time I sit down to write. I try to do so thoughtfully and, yes, prayerfully, but, hey, I'm a fallible human being, frequently imperfect in my judgment. But I can tell you this, I'm actually very sensitive in storytelling with the use of violence for its own sake. So what does that mean exactly, violence for its own sake? For that matter, what does it mean with other vices, like profanity or sexuality? To me, for its own sake means that inclusion serves no purpose except to glorify the vice. But isn't any use of sex or violence a potential glorification of that vice? Well, obviously I don't think so. The brazen use of sexuality and violence is never acceptable. Harsh profanity is never acceptable to me. I know other artists disagree, and I don't care. That's my decision as a storyteller. I've just never felt I had the right to put certain vulgarities in someone else's mind. Some will argue that even replacing certain words with a euphemism puts the actual profanity in the reader's mind anyway, and they have a point, but I still choose the euphemism any day of the week. With the character of Brock, his struggle to avoid profanity sometimes adds character and humor even if the reader fills in the blank. Trust me, I wrestle with these questions every day, and on some days my judgment may be better than others. But it's it's still important, I think, to ponder the questions. Every artist is going to have their own take on this. Some artists might even claim they had no clear objective when creating their piece of art, as if the whole experience was somehow subliminal. I I don't buy that one. But I've often found myself at odds with other artists on these matters, even with other LDS artists. Today's stories are are so saturated with sexuality and violence that most storytellers argue that the discussion itself is antiquated. I mean, really, is anyone out there still arguing that there might be too much of anything? Whatever consumers might think, the discussion is very much alive and well. Not a day goes by that artists and publishers are not doing the old tug-of-war over artistic choices and content. I think I'll discuss this in greater detail in another podcast, perhaps one designed exclusively for aspiring writers and artists, because I mean, this is a big part of this business, and offering practical insights might be an eye-opener. But for now, let's just talk about why I resorted to such violence in this chapter and other chapters in my tennis shoes novels. I posted this same blurb some time ago on my blog and received a very thoughtful post from one of my readers. She said, "'I appreciate you writing honestly about what battle must have been like. Confusion, stink, gore, suffering, very little of it is glory, and many people die slowly.'" I think the cleaned up versions of battle glorify violence. I found that pretty insightful. No rule book exists on exactly what crosses the line and what does not, unless you consider the light of Christ and the gift of the Holy Ghost. Unfortunately, even these forces are often viewed subjectively by some who seek their influence, but I believe they are never subjective to God. God always has the perfect solutions to our artistic dilemmas. The trick is, how do we tap into that? I'm not sure God is always so willing to guide our every keystroke or help us compose every sentence. So, like all imperfect men and women who strive to create using a moral compass, I do my best to live in harmony with God's commandments, simultaneously pleading with Him to provide as much guidance as I can absorb. I already know I'm going to fall short, but it's still an important ideal to strive for. One day, all of us will stand before our maker, artists and non-artists, accountable for our choices. Obviously, we will stand with differing degrees of accountability, but before him we will stand. So as a storyteller, I try to recognize in all humility that putting words and images into someone's mind is a big responsibility, one that I pray I never take lightly. Now, having established all that, I'll try to explain the violence in my novels. As I do so, readers might just discover a secret golden nugget, because somewhere in that explanation, or excuse, however you want to put it, is a real justification for why I have taken so long, more than a quarter century, to complete this series. Okay, nothing justifies that, but hear me out anyway. When I first set out to use fiction to dramatize the Book of Mormon, I'm not sure I possessed the necessary skills, as a researcher, as an observer of the human condition, or as a wordsmith, for something as complex and multi-layered as the battle at Cumorah, or for that matter, the final week in the life of Christ. I'm not sure I feel equal to the task even now, but I'm bold enough to try. Far more talented storytellers than me are destined to emerge, whose works will dwarf my own in quality. But since it does appear that I am the first novelist to seriously attempt to capture some glint of what it was like to be present at Kimura on that fateful day, any complications that have delayed my completion of these novels might, I repeat, might, have been influenced by fate. Is that even possible? Certainly, I'm a more seasoned writer than I was 10, 15, 20 years ago, but that may not even be the most important point. I think the world in which we live and the audience to whom I write may now be more prepared to read what I have to say. I better explain that. I finished the first book in the Tennis Shoes Adventure series in 1989, 1989 was a very different world. For most Earthlings, there was no such thing as the Internet. No cell phone, no Instagram, or iPads, or ISIS. The reason I believe this novel and its depictions are more relevant today is not merely because of what we have, but because of what we don't have. I can sum that up in a single word, a single name, actually. George Robert Hollowell. George was my stepfather, and he definitely did not like to be called George. Something about the nursery rhyme Georgie Porgy Puddin' and Pie rubbed him the wrong way as a child, so George Robert Hollowell was strictly called Bob. When Tennis Shoes Among the Nephites was first released, Bob Hollowell was still with us. My parents divorced when I was four years old, so Bob entered my life the following year, 1968, as my mother remarried. Bob was one tough hombre, a stern and profane man, riddled with flaws, not unlike most human beings I've had the privilege to know. But our initial tempestuous relationship softened over time. I hated him and I loved him in that order. By the time I reached junior high and high school, I probably spent more one-on-one time with Bob, fishing, skiing, and driving the dirt roads of northern Wyoming than anyone else. We remained close until his death in 1993. Bob Hollowell was a Marine, and I used that term the way he used it, in a way that demanded the utmost respect, pride, and honor. The man was a veteran of both World War II and the Pacific Theater and Korea. I think it's safe to say I took more of an active interest in Bob's war experiences than anybody else during his lifetime. He grew up in the Missouri breaks of Montana during the Great Depression and joined the Marines in 1942, when he was only 15 years old, lying about his age like so many other eager and patriotic Americans of his generation. He often told me that of the 200 or so men who joined up with him and his unit, he was only one of two who survived to return home. Bob was never promoted to a rank higher than Buck Sergeant, officially an E-4 in World War II. He was the ultimate grunt soldier assigned the worst possible tasks and the most dangerous front-line assignments. He saw his first action on Midway Island, where he was shot in the foot by a Japanese Zero. The bullet scar was visible every time he went barefoot. The bullets entry and exit were so clean that he fully recovered after only six weeks. Shortly after his 16th birthday in November 1943, Bob landed with the first wave of marines on the Pacific Atoll of Tarawa, and remained there until the enemy was subdued. He also landed with the first wave on Iwo Jima, where Japanese resistance bogged down his platoon in the mud and sand at the edge of the ocean for, if I recall, three days. Imagine. Three days of bullets flying over your head and bombs blowing craters in the beach all around you. He described in detail the stubbornness, which he found incomprehensible, even as he described it to me, of the Japanese and their entrenchment in caves in the face of every cliff, as well as the horror of having no other choice but to burn them out of their hiding place using flamethrowers. If I remember, he at times was one of the operators of those flamethrowers and watched countless men emerge from those caves engulfed in fire. Next, Bob's platoon landed on the island of Okinawa, where initial resistance was light, but where in weeks to come he'd experience the most desperate and ferocious combat of World War II. Okinawa was the worst, he told me. I lost more friends on Okinawa than anywhere." Bob remained in the military after World War II, and four and a half years later, he was deployed to Korea, where he took part in MacArthur's push to capture the Korean Peninsula, promising to end the war by Christmas 1950, a plan that failed miserably. Bob was part of those American units later dubbed the Chosin Frozen, a term applied to soldiers who fought a brutal weeks-long battle near Korea's Chosin Reservoir. He described to me the night of October 25, 1950, when he and his unit watched from their foxholes in awe and terror as tens of thousands of Chinese soldiers crossed the Yalu River and entered Korean territory in a surprise attack. Most didn't even have guns, Bob said to me. Four out of five were just banging sticks together to make a racket. In conditions as cold as 35 degrees below zero, Bob and his marine unit were overrun, forced to abandon most of their food and equipment to the troops of Chairman Mao before regrouping. Lastly, he was part of the breakout of American troops, who fought for every inch and yard to reach the port of Hungnam, on Korea's eastern coast, where he participated in one of the largest amphibious rescues in American military history. At the conclusion of these desperate events, Bob was given the option to retire from active duty, an opportunity he admittedly snatched up with great enthusiasm. After leaving Korea, he remained in the Marines for a number of years, stationed at Paris Island, South Carolina, as a salty, loudmouthed drill sergeant, exactly like the ones portrayed in war movies, training fresh recruits bound for Korea. Only as I've gotten older have I come to appreciate the historical significance of the battles and locations where Bob fought. Truthfully, I've never met anyone who participated in so many famous battles and events. Even today, it's likely that only World War II history buffs and living veterans even recognize the names of Tarawa, Iwo Jima, Okinawa, and the Yalu River. In the 70s and 80s, I think it was common for vets to feel reluctant about describing the gut-wrenching scenes they endured. Bob often gave in to my relentless curiosity, and trust me, I was relentless, but it was clear he did not relish reliving those memories. It seems to me that only those veterans who survived into the 1990s and beyond finally opened up to describe in vivid detail all that they experienced. I think this change in sentiment was born out of a responsibility that they felt, recognizing so many of America's new generations had little appreciation and no understanding of the sacrifices they'd made that allowed America to remain America and our nation to remain free. Bob did not live to be part of this cultural shift of openness. A terrible regret of my life is that I never flipped on a a tape recorder during our long conversations. Heck, I wouldn't have known enough about the questions to elicit the most compelling details. As a result of this negligence, most of Bob Hollowell's experiences and memories died with him. We only have about a decade left, guys. After that, our World War II and Korean veterans will be gone forever. That's the reason, or at least I wonder if that's the reason, fate played a hand in preserving the release of my latest tennis shoes volumes till now. It gives me a small, though painfully inadequate, opportunity to express to a new generation some of the details of raw combat that I learned firsthand from my stepfather. Moreover, I can describe the emotion and sentiment so visible in my stepfather's eyes as he talked about his love of country, and his pride as a Marine. That look is still bright in my memory. Although I'm most certain if Bob was still alive to hear me talk, he'd brush it all off as a load of excrement. Like Brock, I have to euphemize Bob's usual phraseology. Never in my lifetime has America experienced anything like World War II. Yes, we've had wars wherein our troops persevered in the face of equally intense combat, but... Never has the very existence of America been threatened. Not since 1945 have our freedoms been directly on the line. During my lifetime, I've watched America defeated in three different wars, all because the will of the American people and our elected leaders faltered, often to the frustration of our soldiers in arms, who remain my heroes no matter what generation they lived or in what war they fought. The metal, M-E-T-T-L-E, metal of our men and women who decide to serve has never changed. Just the metal of the policymakers at home. The Nephites, and frankly, most other peoples and nations throughout history, did not have the luxury of losing a war and maintaining their pre-war identity and lifestyle. Today, Americans can hardly understand the concept of fighting for one's existence from their own doorstep, or watching their nation overrun by foreign forces. Even more incomprehensible is the idea of fighting a war of extermination where nothing survives, where the life of every man, woman, and child is in jeopardy. Honestly, it's doubtful that even the Nephites fully comprehended what was happening until destruction was finally upon them. Today, most of us have forgotten that war, much like plagues, earthquakes, famines, has been used by God to mete out His justice and or pave the way for the prosperity of His covenant people. I've sometimes heard today's pundits harshly judge the theology of the Old Testament, citing instances when the Lord or His prophet told the Israelites to wipe out entire cities and peoples, leaving nothing alive, not even women, children, or livestock. Check out Numbers chapter 21 or Joshua chapter 6 for a taste of the Lord's policy in those centuries. These same verses are often used to dismiss the entire Bible as laughable, dated, and barbaric, while at the same time, these same modern pundits will laud the superiority of our 21st century values of tolerance and compassion. To use only temporal or secular barometers to judge the ways of God, will give us a very limited view of reality. It's like last week when I talked about modern science and how it must be based on the observations made only in our temporal world, never taking premortality or post-mortality into consideration. Moral sentiment suffers the same kind of myopia if it judges everything with only our temporal existence in mind might as well question every other moral paradox—death, suffering, disaster, undeserved riches, unpunished crimes, and every other perceived injustice or inequity. Indeed, many people do question these seeming contradictions of a loving God, and therefore they question God's very existence. Those who see life strictly through a temporal lens will never comprehend the eternal perspective Holy Writ reminds us to see as the Lord seeth in 1 Samuel, and lean not unto thine own understanding in Proverbs 4 7. Yet the temptation to judge God based on the world's standards of morality is obviously for some irrepressible and overwhelming. My generation and all Americans who have experienced these last 50 years of unprecedented peace would likely find themselves utterly confounded, and unprepared psychologically, physically, and spiritually for any different reality. That's why I've justified some of the more violent depictions in my novels, because I do not believe that our current situation will always be so. The justification is faulty due to my limited understanding, but it's what I have to offer. One purpose or object of storytelling, or of the storyteller, is to help a reader grasp the significance of something they might not otherwise grasp. Now, to think my meager novels or even storytelling itself can provide that missing element of wisdom and preparation is foolish, but at least it's something. If nothing else, God willing, my stories might revitalize someone's faith, perhaps encourage them to draw closer to the gospel that my novels seek to celebrate. If so, I'll feel I played some small part in preparing the world for its inevitable future challenges. To those with an opportunity to speak to the last of our World War II veterans, seize it before it's too late. There's also some magnificent documentaries on the American Heroes channel and many other venues. The other night I was watching the Smithsonian channel and a documentary came on on the American Civil War. Not the stuff I remember from high school. This was misery unparalleled. If we see it, if we comprehend it, if we feel it, perhaps we'll feel a tad more motivation to do as the scriptures advise, follow the prophet, and stand in holy places. Thanks for listening. I hope this podcast is turning into a cool way to spend a half hour of your week. We'd love your support in any way you can show it. We need your support. Until next time, stay close to the Lord. And remember, if you don't feel as close to the Lord today as you did yesterday, check your own latitude and longitude. I promise it wasn't the Lord who moved. God bless you and your loved ones. Over and out.